Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith speaking to you from the offices of the World Business Academy in Santa Barbara. It's an absolutely gorgeous day today. Um, let me introduce myself. I am a wealth advisor, vice president, and uh, essentially a stockbroker with Morgan Stanley D. Smith Barney here in Oxnard, California. And we're going to be speaking again today with Academy President Ronaldo Brutico. Uh, and Ronaldo, are you there? Right here. Thank you, Howard. Good. Okay. Our first topic today, we're going to be talking a little bit about what happened over the Christmas holidays in terms of shopping and employment numbers and what those facts indicate to us about uh, the recession, whether we're in the recession still, out of the recession, whether we're coming out or so forth. So, Ronaldo, why don't you start off and give us your, your feelings and your impressions about what's going on now. Absolutely. Thank you, Howard, and thank you for joining us for the call today. And hello to everyone out there who's uh, listening and on blog radio. It's, um, it's a very interesting position the Academy finds itself in once again. It looks like we're becoming a minority holder of an opinion, which we've expressed in the call last month and calls prior to that. Also, uh, we expressed it in the recently published Econ Forecast, and I really want to recommend that for anybody on this call who would like to see a sample of the Econ Forecast, we'll provide one for free. Uh, it's a for, very affordable document that comes out four times a year that basically covers the entire global economy and sets the macro framework for the conversations we have on blog radio where we look at individual assets and opportunities. That said, uh, you're hearing a lot of talk now. People are afraid of either the double-dip recession, which, by the way, the Academy continues to say isn't going to happen. Uh, there are economists who we really, and I personally really respect, people like Paul Krugman, Nobel laureate, uh, Joseph Stiglitz, another Nobel laureate and a, a really good economist. Both those gentlemen are people who we frequently agree with. Right now, they are raising the specter, our, as are most traditional economists, uh, that we're going to hit a double dip, and they're, they're citing several fa- possible factors. One of them is the jobs issue that came up in December, and others ha- other issues that deal with uh, potential overhangs and risks in the home, f- home foreclosure market and the housing market. But let me just address the two issues that Howard raised right now very briefly. Uh, I think most uh, most observers were extremely pleased with the uh, December sales results. The, the, the holiday season this year in 2009 actually exceeded people's expectations. It looks to me like the brick-and-mortar retail came in at about 3.2% better than brick-and-mortar last year. And when you factor in the even higher rate of growth that occurred in electronic retailing, which continues to outperform brick-and-mortar retailing and will continue to do so indefinitely for the next decade and beyond. Uh, So knowing about electronic retailing is increasingly something important that everybody on this call should be aware of. And hopefully we'll get some specific questions like, Why is it a company like Zappos can come out of nowhere and be so uh, lucrative? Why can it make so much money? Um, What does explain the whole Amazon phenomenon? What does that mean for our consumer buying patterns, and what does it mean for the way we'll spend our dollars are really good questions. But for this year, we know that the – that the uh, the economy, uh, the, the retail sales economy, was better than was predicted. Came in even a little bit better. We were on the we were on the more aggressive side. We predicted it would be up at least two to three percent. I'm delighted that we were even a little conservative and it exceeded our expectations. But I know when we issued that prediction a year ago, people were thinking that we were wildly optimistic. As it turns out, it was a bit conservative. In addition. Um, what we're seeing is uh, a projection which I'd like to just share with people. It came from Mark Zandi the other day, 
Mark Zandi is the chief economist for Moody's Investment Services. I, generally speaking, don't care for a lot of Mark's work at the macroeconomic level, but I do agree with what he's saying will happen through a combination of factors, which is a real GDP growth, meaning gross national product, of about 3.5% coming up for this year, which will be in part fueled by continuing improvements in, in retail sales. I'll give you an example. First week of January, retail sales only fell 1% from December. Now, most economists, in fact, almost all economists were expecting 1.5% drop or more because the first week of January is when people return their Christmas merchandise. It's not when they go heavily and buy it. So that buying continued past December meant that the consumer did not exhaust him or herself this Christmas, kept uh, some of their money tucked away. In fact, we know that for absolute certainty because – the consumer this year, at the end of the Christmas season, had higher personal savings than they had three months earlier. So people are learning the lesson about saving, which is really a wonderful thing, and they had money left to, to resume normal consumption patterns beginning in January. So that 1% drop from December to January is actually an extremely positive sign, and you can expect that, that retail for the year upcoming will continue to climb in a solid and methodical way. I don't expect to see any wild fluctuations, you know, absent some major cataclysmic activity that occurs like some some terrorist actually striking America and getting and, and being effective. The other part of the, the, the story though that Howard had touched on and I just want well, to comment on before you move on to that, let me just ask one quick question. And let me also remind our audience that if you wish to ask a question and get on our queue, all you need to do is press the number one on your phone pad and we will see your number light up here on the board and at an appropriate moment we'll queue you in uh, to ask that question. But let me ask you, Ronaldo, anecdotally, as I talk to people in our community, they all say, well, I spent much less this year, um, or I'm, I'm waiting. And how does that jive with, with the actual statistics that we're seeing? I mean, what do you account for that, that, that sort of discrepancy? Well, I think they're holding off buying. Yeah, I think, I think two things are happening. And then let's, let's return to that jobs, because I think that jobs uh, point you raised earlier in the first question is actually what's on more people's mind than retail sales at this point. No, I think what's going on is it, we saw during the Bush years, and, and I'm not picking on him because he's a Republican. I'm just speaking about the economic philosophy that was uh, uh, the dominant philosophy at the time, was the belief that, you, that, that, that if the rich got richer, they'd spend more than the, than the poor, the middle class, and therefore, you would have this trickle-down of economic benefits as the larger, more wealthy classes spent more money, and it would trickle down to the lower classes. The, the, the Great Correction, as I'll call it, the, the enormous recession of 2009, started to scare people who were even in the uppermost brackets and, and, and affected people in the uppermost brackets. And it wasn't just people like Bernie Madoff making off making off, literally, with you know tens of billions of dollars, it was that people who were uh, in those higher brackets became fearful that their, their, their savings were jeopardized, uh, a market collapse could occur. They started freezing up spending. And, and so you saw a tremendous number of stores in the high-end bracket uh, do, do just a nosedive. I mean, I'm talking Saks Fifth Avenue, Tiffany's, et cetera. Well, what's happened is, that in the last four months, it's become very clear to thoughtful observers that the recession has ended. And since the recession has ended, those people who have significant resources are breathing a collective sigh of relief. And their, their bank accounts are a little bit lower, but if you start with a billion, having lost $100 million doesn't really affect you. I don't know if many people are still trying to sell the corporate jet, just about everybody who's still got a jet's keeping it. So what's going on now is that the, the, the more affluent classes of America – 
are, are resuming a purchasing uh, cycle, which is higher on a per capita base, uh, and certainly on a per GDP base, than, than the average consumer. So those people are starting to have an upward buoyant effect on, on retail sales. There's another thing happening, however, and that's this, this very, very big phenomenon where people are going online and buying things much quicker than they would have. In other words, people aren't waiting to go to um, their local store to buy something when they can get free shipping, which is quite common on the web now, uh, if they just buy a small quantity of it now. For example, um, Hewlett-Packard has a very in incredible free shipping program for all of the ink they sell for all of their um, you know, personal printers and that kind of thing. So that what it causes you to do is instead of waiting to have to go to the store to buy a bunch, you just go, gee, I can afford to buy just the, the cartridges I need. They'll send them to me free shipping. They'll get here in two days. Why not? And, of course, they charge more, but um, it's, it saves you a trip. It saves you some gas, and you go, okay, I'll get it. So what I'm seeing is a steady push for, for normal kinds of consumption, not holiday-driven consumption, but normal kinds of consumption. Third point, what you're seeing now, and this will tie back to the, the jobs report, you're seeing us drop from 700,000 job losses a month in January to the last three months of the year, October, November, December, the moving average was only 38,000. So imagine that, 700,000 a month down to 38,000 a month losses. Now, to those 38,000 people, it's just as traumatic as it was to the first 700,000. But the downward pressure on the economy of 38,000 people not being able to buy things this month is such a tiny fraction of the downward pressure of 700,000 people a month not being able to buy that that also is tending to lift sales because those people who were the, who were most vulnerable are beginning to believe, okay, I'm going to make it. I'm not going to be one of the ones fired in this deep recession. My job's going to last. Final, a final point. I think it's a real interesting point, and I will come back to the jobs. I, I think that what's going on is that people are being more selective in what they purchase. I, I, with, the, with the exception of the upper economic groups, the upper economic classes, the, the, the typical middle class and middle class and uh, upper middle class person is being very selective in what they purchase, but they are not shutting their wallet anymore the way we saw the freeze happen because their fear that the economy isn't recovering is receding. And as it recedes, they don't even realize it, but they're slowly spending more in little ways. What, the, what they're starting to do is they're starting to return to white tablecloth restaurants. Uh, they're starting to feel like they can afford to go out to eat a little bit more. They're, they're starting to realize that they don't have to wait uh, six weeks to two months to send a shirt to the dry cleaners or a blouse. They can do it if they want today. And all these little cumulative judgments, which the public is starting to make about, hmm, I'm going to be okay, those judgments are what's lifting retail sales, I think. Now, it's not a dramatic lift. Remember, retail sales today is still not where it was two years ago. But, what it, but it's a lift that we can expect will continue on for the next 12 months, and people need to be observing that because that tells you a lot about what's going to happen to your You need to put it from here till then. Ronaldo, let me ask you another question related to this. Uh, we, again, we hear a lot of questions coming from the public about whether or not this is going to be, quote-unquote, a jobless recovery. Um, I'm not sure that's an oxymoron that can actually exist, but what do you think about that? I mean, okay. are we facing a recovery that is not going to take, that's going to leave us with high unemployment? Okay, well, first of all, and I, and I, 
I have very mixed emotions about a number of economists who shoot from their hip and I think do it for effect as much as because they're thinking it through. But I, I was uh, I was uh, very disappointed uh, in Roush's, uh, Robert Roush, the uh, former Secretary of Treasury under Clinton. I was really disappointed to see his analysis that where he said this is going to be a job, but he's the one who's basically saying this, the jobless at recovery, uh, because if we added jobs at a rate of 400,000 a month between now and 2012, it, that's what it would take to make up for all the jobs we lost in this last uh, crisis. Well, that, that to me is remarkably misleading for a whole bunch of reasons. And he points out correctly that in the boom years of the 90s, we, we, uh, we only added 250,000 jobs a month, not 400,000. So his point being, in boom times, which we had in the 90s, which were an inflated and bubble-driven booms, I might add, we had this job growth that was huge, 250, and he says, well, but we'll need 400,000 to get back to where we are. Where is the fallacy in that argument? Well, there are several. Let me point them out. First of all, let's not forget that the biggest demographic thing happening in the United States of America is called the age wave. There's, I, I'm just a, a few weeks short of 63 years old, and there's a whole bunch like me. There's way more of us than there are 20-year-olds right now. And what happens is that as a 63-year-old gets to the end of his theoretically uh, uh, most productive years, he may elect to not re-enter the workforce in 2012 because he'll be 65 at that point. So the, at 63-year-old, departing the workforce has a huge impact on the total number of jobs that you need. So right off the bat, the, the number of jobs you need is not a static number. The number of jobs you need is a function of the number of people you have to employ in the society for one reason or another. Second statistic that people need to be aware of, it's a very important statistic. We've probably had over a million, some people say as high as two million people leave the country who were here illegally because they lost their jobs. Clearly, you're not going to replace all two million of those because we now have a stronger border policy about immigration. And I think immigration is going to be an issue that the, 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 the White House is going to focus on. So you're not going to have as many people flooding the country illegally. Therefore, you won't need the same job creation you had in the 90s when hundreds of thousands of people were flooding across the borders because the jobs were so plentiful in America. As you know, the migration has gone the other direction in the last few months through 2009. Third factor. Very huge factor is that uh, Roush is underestimating the way this president is building the new jobs mechanisms. He's looking at the job creation that occurred when the when basically the country in the 90s didn't do anything different. It just had a lot of money to do it with because it was creating a series of bubbles, and specifically the real estate bubble. In this recovery, what's happening instead of so much of the recovery creating what I would call phony wealth in the terms of uh, what you think your house was worth, but it really wasn't in the first place. Instead of creating phony wealth like the wealth we created on Wall Street for these billion-dollar bonus babies, this recovery is going to be a combination of government stimulus, green, collar, green sector jobs creation, decreased dependency on foreign oil and carbon fuels, increased reliance on new technologies and new industries, and a decrease on the way we look at how jobs should be created. Fourth and final factor, and I could give you two more, but I'll stop here. People have to start looking at these numbers carefully. When you look at the unemployment number, if you include teenage unemployment, which is a big chunk of it, you know, I believe, and it's tragic, it's true, it's, I think black teenage unemployment is probably somewhere hovering around 30% right now. 
It's a terrible statistic. But it also just means there isn't going to be as much money for those kids. Unfortunately, it creates some social problems, I think some real serious social problems, that those kids may be on the streets causing trouble. But what it really means is the household hasn't been impaired. So watch this year that teen spending will continue. It's way down right now. It's going to stay down. The teens are going to be the last hired. And so does that create the same economic ill effect in the economy as an adult who's 45 years old with two kids who has to keep the mortgage paid? The answer is no. So I could go on, but I think what my answer is trying to do, I'm trying to point out to people that when they hear these solipsistic, silly statements by economic pundits or who claim to be on television or in the newspapers, pierce through to the basic underlying questions. And when you hear unemployment, that's not a homogeneous concept. Unemployment is split into multiple categories for multiple reasons across multiple economic sectors, and you have to understand the fundamentals of the economy to understand the question of whether it's a jobless recovery. In a word, the answer is no, this is not a jobless recovery, but it's not an inflated jobs recovery either, meaning we're going to have slow, as we say in econ forecast, slow, steady, predictable growth all through 2010, We'll have a 3.5% growth in GNP, and uh, as I said last month in the call, and we said before that, three, three issues ago in Econ Forecast, there would possibly be, I said last month, a slight blip in unemployment in December because of what's called the seasonal adjustment factors, and that blip occurred. We went from basically a negative uh, 11,000 jobs in November to a negative 85,000. I'm almost certain most of that is a seasonal adjustment factor. I can explain why if people want to ask the question. But the bottom line conclusion is that means January, the the adjustment factors will be over in January. January will be uh, neutral to positive in job growth. And for sure by February and from each month thereafter, you will see positive job growth. And watch what that does to people's psychology. It's really going to prove it. Okay. Well, let's start from that point. Um, We obviously have a shift in where the economy is going. Uh, I want to take this now down to a more personal level. And where do you think that people should be putting their capital, uh, both short and midterm, given the economic scenario as you've discussed? Uh, what are some of the, the better, safer places you think people should be moving money to? Well, as you know, Howard, I mean, this question is, of course, such an individual question. And that's why I tell people that if they haven't got someone they can talk about their individual portfolio to, um, they, we, I'd love to refer them, whether it's to someone like you for larger, um, larger chunks of money or for people uh, like our good friend Stuart Valentine for, um, for uh, smaller um, 401Ks and, and, and savings uh, accumulations. But um, we, we said for a year now we've been recommending uh, Brazilian industrial development bonds. I continued to recommend that last month. And I said, you know, the, the Brazilian real has had some adjustments. The dollar rose a little bit against it. But that I thought that that was temporary and that the longer term, the Brazilian industrial development bonds would continue to produce at least 9% interest on an investment-grade bond <clears throat> and would continue to either hold its value in terms of the face bond amount or would actually appreciate. And, in fact, that's what's happened in the last month. Even though there was a dip uh, today, the, the, the face of the bond, if you'd have bought it a month ago on this phone call, would have been a little bit higher today than it was then, and your interest would have been a little bit more than 9%. So if you like current income and you want complete safety and you're willing to risk the fact that <clears throat> the face amount of the bond will go up and down with the ratio of the Brazil real to the American dollar, and I personally believe 
that the Brazilian real will continue to get firmer or stronger against the dollar, then I continue to believe that's your best thing because where can you get 9% that's totally safe in the world today? So I'm a real big believer in that. Of course... Just to interrupt for a second, we hear a lot of questions coming in all the time about gold. Uh, yeah, Got okay. to buy gold. You get, it gets hammered at people every time they turn on a business channel to find out what's going on in the uh, business news. What's your feeling about that? Yeah, and I know I thought we were thinking on the, on the lightning round, but let's do it right now. Then I want to come back, if we can, to um, other places you can put your money. But, you know, one of the things that people need to do, Howard, is it is human nature something. It's just amazing. You've got to stop and ask, who's doing the yelling, buy gold or sell gold? And what's their real motive? If it's a company like Monix, they only make money if you buy gold from them. So no matter what you do in this economy, they're going to find a reason to tell you to go buy gold. Now, last month in this call, I was specifically asked by Jet from Denmark, should, we, should she continue to buy gold? And I said, no, Jet. I think this, this, at this point, if you've got gold, hold it. Uh, gold was at uh, 1,250 an ounce at that point. I said, Jet, hold it. I think there's as much risk it can go sideways or down as there are potential for it to go up. So I wouldn't buy gold right now, and I wouldn't sell gold. I would hold gold. But my bias is it's going to go sideways or a little bit down. And, in fact, since I made that statement uh, a month ago, the price of gold has fallen a little bit. It's now down in the 1100s instead of the 1200s. Uh, the long-term trend for me for gold does not look particularly propitious. But Monix wants you to think there's some crisis, so you'll rush out and buy it, because when you buy it, they make money. And gold's a tough thing to own, because either you have to own it in what's called species, meaning you have to take the physical metal, and that's expensive to store, or you have to find other ways. You can buy stocks in a gold mining company, or you can buy um, ETFs. But you have to, it, gold is, it costs money to hold gold, so it's got to produce money for you in appreciation, or it's not a good investment. So, no, I would not buy gold today. Uh, I think that the, there's, there's not enough reasons to be fearful of an international collapse because the global economy is recovering. So one of the big reasons to buy gold is now gone. And I don't think that the, on, on the merits, gold is, as a relative store of value, is worth what it's currently selling for. It's certainly not worth a whole lot more. So I would say the bias is to the downside, not to the upside on gold. Right. Well, what are uh, some of your other ideas? Uh, okay. Let, let, me, let me start with two things. Let, let's start, where do you stash your money? You know, um, first of all, people need to maintain a certain amount of liquidity, but they know if they put that liquidity into a um, uh, savings account, they're going to get virtually nothing for it. And so that doesn't really feel right, because even if you assume inflation this year is only going to run about 2%, which is probably accurate for at least the first six months of the year. I'm not sure what sort of all bets are off for the second six months. But if, if you think that's true, you, you don't really want to get a low interest rate in your savings account, and no, no savings account really pays that much right now. Um, what you really want to do is you want to have a decent uh, liquidity, meaning you want to be able to get your money out when you need it. That's real important. And you want to be able to say that you can get the best available rate for it. So I like to recommend ING, I-N-G, the electronic bank that's online right now, because uh, ING, for example, has a, uh, a great um, opportunity. Um, they have different kinds of accounts. But, for example, if you do their, uh, I think their electric gold, uh, their electric orange, rather, is paying 1.45%. Uh, for money you can tap any day, and it's not even a CD. 
Uh, their CDs only pay 1.6 for 12 months, but that's frankly a decent rate because CDs aren't that good right now. So I tend to say keep some cash as a cushion, particularly right now, and get the best rate you can for cash that's available every day. The best savings rate I know of that's safe, guaranteed, by the way, by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, is Inc. Just about to ask you that, if that was, in fact, they're insured, uh, and the lim- up to the limits of FDIC insurance. Yeah, two, 250 Yeah. So so that would be an example. Now, let me go to one more thing. that, And, and, and I don't really plug other people's things, uh, stuff, because I, I don't necessarily always agree with them. They say, but there's a guy on, on CNN I want to comment on. And his name is, 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 is Howard, uh, Clark Howard. Uh, Clark Howard is a, a real kind of consumer advocate. And Howard's basic theory is increase your savings, and the best way to do that is be smart with how you spend your money. And I've been trying to watch his show now off and on for the last three or four months, and I must say I agree with most everything he's saying. He's giving people really practical advice about how to spend less, how to save more. He gives them really practical advice about you know, eliminating high interest rate debt like credit card debt, not eliminating low long-term fixed debt like a 5% mortgage on a house. You won't want to prepay that. Um, he gives people advice on how to take care of themselves as a consumer advocate. So I would say people ought to start tuning into Clark Howard's show and see if they can increase their wealth and their savings by taking some of Clark's very good advice and tips. And by the way, you can call into Clark, and he'll take your question over there just like I do. The third, third thing I want to come back to is the, the, the people who yell about buy gold, sell gold, they make money buying and selling gold. Howard, there are so many people who make money selling newsletters that what their goal is is to get you to, to react. So everything is inflammatory. Everything is, is dramatic. And these people are doing a terrible disservice. So the first piece of advice I give to anybody who's interested in how to protect their money is don't listen to the charlatans and always question what person's economic motive is for giving the information. On this program, we always say to people, look, we don't make any money if you buy something and you sell something. You're paying, to, you're paying $25 a month to hear what we say. If you can't figure out through your own investment advisor how to convert that $25 a month into thousands and thousands of dollars of benefit per year, we're feeling very sorry for it because we know that that's what the information's worth. But it's your job to find the right financial advisor, broker, or whomever with whom you're going to execute the strategies you hear about and, and the suggestions on this show. And when they find that person and they take our advice, I can assure you they're going to be very, very happy with the outcome because, frankly, people look at my records all the time and are delighted with what I've been able to achieve month after month in my own portfolio. Now, last thing I want to say. I think well, before, it's re- before you go on to the last point, Ronaldo, let me ask you, what do you think about people like Jim Cramer or Ali Bashir that make a lot of noise on TV, the business channels, um, Thank you, for, yeah, thank you for asking because um, let's take Jim Cramer first. Jim Cramer is not only unsophisticated, he has a record of being wrong so often, it's actually quite remarkable. It's almost like a stopped clock is right as often as Jim Cramer, which is twice a day. You know, I mean, a stopped clock is right if you think about it. And when it's dead stopped, it accidentally will be right once or twice a day. However, for the other 22 hours, it's completely bowled wrong. Kramer has a record of being that way, and in fact, the best, according to Ariana Huffington, the best investigative journalism uh, interview of 2009 was a comedian, John Stewart, basically tarring Jim Kramer for all of his blatant inaccuracies and for all the things he kept saying in the face of obvious evidence that we were into a deep, deep recession. And he kept telling people, buy, 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 because that's his job. He's a good example of a guy who's trying to get you to watch and buy 
because that's how he makes his living. Now, I want to I want to give Kramer how one possible one money. From, how does he, he makes his money from people buying and selling, or he makes his pe- money from people watching his show? He gets pe- he makes money from people watching his show and from his advertisers, and who supports him and who supports him is Wall Street Howard because they think if they drive people there, he'll convince them to buy and sell, and they come back and spend money on Wall Street. What he's doing is he's, he's like the carnival barker getting you into the tent. She walks, she crawls, she, 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 she crawls on her belly like a reptile. Come see Little Egypt for only a dime, one thin dime. I mean, that's Jim Cramer. He's a, little, a carnival barker. Now, I want to give him one, one, one pass for a moment. I know for a fact the guy who just took over as the editor-in-chief of the Cramer newsletter is a very, very smart guy who they just hired. And I believe they hired him because they realized that Kramer was making such a fool of himself with his predictions. They needed to get somebody who knew what they were doing to write his newsletter. Remember, Kramer sends out a newsletter and gets paid for it, just like all the other guys who send out newsletters and want to make it dramatic so you'll pay them. I'm hoping that the new, the, 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 the new editor-in-chief of Kramer's newsletter is going to have the impact of giving Kramer good information. Then at least when he's a carnival barker, he'll have, he'll have accuracy, the tent he'll send you into, actually has a chance of producing some benefit for you. So that's what I think of Kramer. Let me take Ali Basher. Anybody who would listen to Ali Basher about anything on the economics doesn't deserve to have any money left at the end of the conversation. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, there's this old saying my mother taught me, a fool and his money are soon parted. Ali Basher has less economic information at his fingertips than everybody who's listening to this phone call once a month has. His accuracy isn't even the question because he, he doesn't even understand what he's talking about. I watch Ali Basher to see what he's telling people so I can try and get a sense of why on earth would CNN have someone like Ali Basher talking about the economy? And then it dawned on me, of course, CNN is not about information anymore. It's about entertainment. And in his case, they call it infotainment, information that's entertaining. So I don't criticize Ali Basher for being an entertainer, because that's what he is. What I criticize is that he has anything to say whatsoever about the economy. If he was really, really in integrity, in my estimation, what Ali Basher would do is he would ask people like me on his show to talk to people about what's really going on, rather than pretend that he knows because God knows he doesn't. He doesn't even understand the fundamentals. Now, contrast what I said about Ali Basher, CNN, with what I just said a few minutes ago about Chuck uh, Howard, Clark Howard. <clears throat> Clark Howard, I think, is performing a real service. He actually knows what he's talking about, and he's been doing it for years. And he's, he's giving people a chance to save money and make money in totally legitimate ways by protecting themselves and being smart. Ali Basher is taking advantage of people by dumbing down information he doesn't understand, so it's more entertaining, so he can have ratings, and at the end of the day, people lose their money. That's Ali Basher in a nutshell. Right. Ronaldo, we're going to move on to our lightning round in just a second here. And I just want to remind people that if you have a question you'd like to pose and you're already on our phone system, simply press 1 on your keypad, and I'll see the phone line light up here. And if you want to call in and get on the line, the the number is, again, area code 347-989-8946. So anybody wants to call in, dial that number, get yourself onto the call, and then hit press 1. And again, not the pound sign, just the number 1, and we'll see your number light up. So in our lightning round today, again, just a couple of quick comments, Ronaldo, on some of the major asset classes. We've already touched on gold. You might want to go more into that. But uh, the main topics for today's lightning round will be commercial real estate, um, housing, 
gold, energy, and the dollar. Maybe we'll hold energy off because we're going to talk about Copenhagen at the end of the show. Okay, so let's just do the dollar first. Okay. Okay, dollar is firming, as you know, currently. Um, the euro uh, is now over 35% of the total reserve money in the, in the planet, which makes them uh, – that, that makes them a reserve currency, finally. So we have <clears throat> the U.S. dollar is the main reserve currency. The euro has now taken a steady, solid place as the second reserve currency. First time that's happened in, I guess, what, 30, 40 years. So that's a very important factor because it means that the dependence that the globe has on the U.S. dollar for commerce, for international commerce – will continue to deteriorate, meaning will continue to decrease. As that happens, there'll be less and less support to keep our dollar up as the, at the, the rate it is, and because people know, um, here's a statistic, I just calculated this the other day, we, in, in two years, from 2007 to 2009, the total amount of American money in circulation went up in two years by 130%. That's astronomical. Money supply growth of five to seven percent per annum is something people are used to. One hundred thirty percent, one hundred thirty-three percent to be exact. That's just over the top. So what do you all that, that to? we printed money. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I think we did the right thing, by the way. I think that this government. I, I don't like the way some of it got spent. Particularly, I don't think there should have been a no string. I think the Paulson thing, the no strings attached, three hundred billion we never saw and can't find that we gave to the banks. I think that was bad money printing. I think that the um, the idea of giving. Um, uh, the money we did with no strings attached we, uh, through AIG, giving $12 billion to Goldman Sachs, literally, for their bad investments in derivatives, so that Goldman Sachs could turn around, take that $12 billion, and literally use it to declare bonuses for their executives. I don't think that was smart money printing. But at the end of the day, the federal government printed money, the Fed specifically, as if there was no tomorrow. And, and I think that's not necessarily the, the, the terrible thing vis-a-vis the deficit that most conservatives and even some liberal economists are afraid of. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a deficit hawk, but I also have a different view of the nature of the deficit and why it isn't as scary right now as people think it is. Having said that, what we really well, have... Let me, to... let, me, let me ask you a question related to that. Uh, again, we've heard from a lot of different commentators over the past year that the total amount of government spending by the feds has clearly gone up, but that every one of the 50 states Every municipality, every county, every city out there in the United States has cut spending, and that the total amount of that spending that has been reduced by the other uh, government agencies is actually greater than the amount of money the feds have printed uh, to get us out of this recession. Any any thoughts on that notion? Yeah, okay, that's really a great comment because notice we were talking about monetary supply, and you cut in with spending. So what the mistake almost, and I'm not saying you made a mistake, because I know you know the difference, but I want the listeners to know the difference. See, monetary supply is not affected by what the states do. Totally irrelevant. Monetary supply is affected only by what the feds do. So we could increase, we could balloon up the amount of paper in circulation, which is what we did, and I'm saying most of it for good reason, because we staved off the worst economic collapse in human history, and I give nothing but credit to the administration for doing that, particularly the way it was handed to them in January. It was a god-awful mess, and you know, $350 billion here you couldn't find, stuff over there you couldn't find, no trackability, no accountability. Clearly, Wall Street was feasting on the bones of the American public. Uh, okay, All that happened, and now you're looking at the states and the cities in terrible financial shape. We said in October of 2008 
in our, in our trickle-up economics piece, one of the things the Obama administration has got to do is to create emergency ways to supply capital and resources to the states and municipal governments. It needs to do that either in the form of directly paying for police, firemen, and teacher salaries, which therefore creates money in the local economy, or it needs to create other ways to overcome most states' prohibition of go- carrying debt from year to year on the books of the states, which is what's causing all these draconian cutbacks. I mean, let me give you one example, Howard. You're in the state of California. In the state of California, the finest public university system in the world was called the University of California. That system is being destroyed. Now, that's a crazy long-term strategy. If you're living in an increasingly competitive world where technology and education will drive the winners and the losers, you can't afford to destroy the best university system in the world, public university system. You can't do that. And that's what's exactly happening because of the crisis of the California Constitution colliding with the lack of resources and less than full support by the federal government for the states and cities. Did you notice just last week the Republican governor of the state of California, Schwarzenegger, came out and applauded the way Obama's handling a number of things because he realizes that the relationship of the states and the federal government cannot be antagonistic if you're Republican and Democrat. What you have to do is focus on how the federal government is going to come to the rescue of the states and the cities the way they rescued Wall Street and the way they rescued basically GM, Ford, well, GM and Chrysler, I shouldn't say Ford. Anyway, um, those are all observations on the monetary supply. So the dollar is weakening because the monetary supply continues to grow, and what's going to happen is there's going to have to be some a realignment. I think the administration... Because, you know, Germany wants the dollar to fall because, I mean, to rise, because if, it, if the dollar has gone lower against the euro, which it has, that makes German and European exports less competitive. Well, the dollar I don't see going up. I, I, I see if the administration is very fortunate that it will continue to gently drop down further as the monetary supply and the deficit come back into balance with the GDP. I don't expect that to happen for the next six months or longer. And so I do think that the dollar will continue to show some weakness for the next six months. And since there is no fear driving the strength of the dollar, which there was during the, the, the depths of the recession, uh, the idea being you, you, the, the flight to safety, it's called, people would take dollars on because if there was only country left, one country left in the world, it would be the U.S., and therefore the currencies would be strong. When people stop dumping their currencies with that fear in mind, then they look at underlying fundamentals, and that's why we correctly have predicted now for two and a half years that the Brazilian currency, which started at 41 cents the dollar, is now 58, 59 cents the dollar. Why that had to rise based on fundamentals, i.e., they print less money relative to the growth of their economy, whereas we print more money relative to the growth of our economy. Uh, right those now, are some observations. Right. Right now, the dollar is floating around a dollar 44 uh, to the euro. Um, you know, before the economic crisis, it was. Uh, as high as a dollar sixty, or I should say, lowest in value is dollar sixty um, for a single euro. And at other points, it's been around a dollar thirty. Um, is there some place in that range that you think the dollar is going to end up towards the end of the year? I think it's hard to see to the end of the year right now because, Howard, we don't know for sure when the federal government is going to start tightening with its interest rates. Um, we know that the negative interest rates we have are driving the support of the economic recovery, and, we, and, I, and, and also it's, it's being a huge, it's a tremendous safety net under the housing market. 
So the, the administration will do everything in its power to wait as long as it can, I include the Fed and the administration on that, uh, to keep the interest rates down as low as possible. That is not going to be possible, I don't think, much beyond June 1st, if not sooner. Well, when the interest rates start to change, we're going to see a whole bunch of dynamics shift. The, the machine the, uh, called the U.S. economy and the global economy is going to make some dramatic adjustments. I really have to see more about what the nature of the increase in the interest rates will be, the relationship it will have, the effect on the foreclosure overhang and private housing. We haven't talked about private housing, but there's clearly a foreclosure hang, uh, meaning that there's a, there's a huge hanging number of potential foreclosures that could occur. And we have to take a look at what would trigger more of them rather than less of them. And by the way, I don't think the dominant statistic six months from today is going to be how many people have mortgages that are worth, that cost more than the value of their house. That's been a popular statistic in, in the early stages of the recession. It was a good statistic. Today it's misleading. The fact of the matter is, if people are able to make their mortgage payments and they're happy where they live, they, they're starting to look at their house like what it was originally, which is a shelter not an investment. And those people will continue to live in those houses, and they will continue to keep their mortgages paid, even though the mortgage is disproportionately high relative to the real estate. As more and more people do that, the value of the real estate will continue to rise, and at one point, the real estate will overtake the mortgage value, and all of a sudden, all those, quote, underwater mortgages won't be a problem. Well, let me but, interrupt you with another question related to that. Uh, again, we hear from many sources that because we're going into a congressional election year, uh, and there's a lot of pressure on Congress, uh, again, mostly dealing with their own local districts rather than national issues, that the biggest topic is going to be unemployment, and related to that is obviously interest rates. And we have heard it said that interest rates will not rise significantly, maybe a you know, quarter point, half a point, a point, uh, to before the elections at the most, um, because the ability to have free capital, and I have a follow-up question on this too, to have cheap capital is important to help stimulate job recovery. What do you think about that? Well, I think, I think that, that will that's keep rates low. Well, that's exactly what I'm referring to in the comment I just made. The pressure on the federal government and the Fed to keep rates low so that it doesn't aggravate the, this, this, this weak but growing recovery is huge. That pressure is huge. And so I would tend to expect that smart people who know what they're doing, and I, and I do think uh, I think the Fed's learned a lesson. I do not believe the Fed should be given greater regulatory powers uh, because I think they didn't use the powers they had, and that's what got us into this mess in the first place. And I'm very much in favor. Extra I'm extremely. Everybody should write their congressman for that independent consumer agency that would basically regulate all financial institutions. That's the best safety valve there would be for us to keep the economy on track for the next 10, 20 years. But okay. having said that, the Fed's pretty smart folks. They've learned a lot. Bernanke, as you know, is a student of the Depression. Uh, the people of the administration are quite sanguine, meaning the, the president himself. I, I Frankly, I'm not impressed with Geithner. I continue to think he's very unimpressive, and I'm completely uh, discouraged by Larry Summers continuing to be an economic advisor to the president. That said, I think the president himself understands what he's doing. And what he's going to try to do is let the – he will hope that the rates will rise just a little bit, enough so that the recovery doesn't get going at a gallop but continues, and enough so that the stability can come back into the U.S. dollar and that it would start to firm up. And, of course, I, want, I think they're going to want to see it firm somewhere, somewhere close to a buck sixty. Um, they would be happy at a buck fifty-five. They'll take it at a buck sixty. If it turns out that they miss and you're starting to see – two American dollars for one euro, you're in, a, you're, in a peak, you're in a lot of trouble. 
In fact, long before you cross 160 to the euro, people will be talking about being in trouble. Uh, and trouble is a complicated statement that I could get into in the next call if somebody wants to, but it has to do with who holds American dollars like China, Japan, and what those countries will do with their American dollars if they see it deteriorating rapidly. The name of the game here is let the air out of the balloon gradually and let a growing economic machine in the U.S., which is growing faster than Europe now, outperform Europe and start to nibble away at that excess monetary supply by bringing the ratio of money in circulation back to a better ratio to economic activity. Now, that we can happen another, and is happening. Right. We have another question related to that whole issue, and this one goes to a concept called the carry trade. And yeah. for those of you who do not know exactly what the carry trade is, right now we're experiencing a situation where a lot of banks that usually do business loans, particularly small business loans, uh, which are a little bit higher risk than, than a typical mortgage, uh, those banks, rather than investing money that potentially jeopardizes their balance sheet, instead of investing in loans, they're actually just simply investing in other investments that are paying half a percent or a percent more and going the conservative route to keeping their balance sheet happy and their stockholders happy, which along also in one sense is keeping federal regulators happy about the solvency of the bank, but it is certainly not helping break the logjam and getting money flowing to small businesses and lending. Um, thoughts on that and how would that can be Absolutely. positively? First, first thought, if you haven't heard about it, folks, join Ariana Huffington and, and Bill Maher and thousands of others. Move your money. There's this movement out now called Move My Money, and they're talking about taking it, and you can go to Huffington Post and you'll hear all about it, or you can, I think you can even Google movemymoney.com org or whatever anyway do that yes okay and, and what they're saying is if enough people would walk into the six major banks you know bank of america wells fargo uh the jp morgan um it's that chase you know if, if you walk into these big banks and say you know what i'm moving my money to a local community bank that's highly rated by the feds for solvency and is interested in, in lending money because they don't have a division that lends money in the carry trade let me give you an example so as you know my principal home is in ojai california and I was one of the founders to help found a bank called the OI Community Bank. When we started that bank four or five years ago, because I knew what I was writing in the econ forecast, one of the things I said is I'm only going to participate if we have an absolute prohibition against that type of paper being used to make money for this bank. We have to make money in this bank the old-fashioned way. We've got to lend it to local people. We have to collect it from local people. And we have to make a fair profit on the difference. That's what the OI Community Bank does. It has the highest rating in the federal, for the federal government audits of, of any community bank in America because it's solid as the rock of Gibraltar because it never got in trouble. It never did any of those silly things that the banks did that almost cratered them. Well, the carry trade is, is something that our charter doesn't let us participate in, meaning we're not allowed to gamble with our depositors' money. That's what the carry trade is. Now, is it a safe gamble? Yes, it's relatively safe. Look, the carry trade started over 20 years ago when the Japanese government, beginning its long decline, decided it was going to create money at cheaper than the cost of money. So negative interest rates hit Japan first 20 years ago. Their thought was it would take a few years of doing that, and they'd come out of it. 20 years later, it hasn't happened. My point is people started then taking money out of Japan at extremely low rates and putting it in banks in other parts of the world and making a half a point or a point spread. That was called the Japan carry trade. Now we have a new carry trade called the U.S. carry trade, where you can take money out of the U.S. and at a very, very low, low rate, and you can put it somewhere else and get more money for your take. For the best spread right now is probably U.S. to Australia, frankly, because Australia raised its interest rates again uh, last month. 
So, so can, is it relatively safe? Yeah. You know, I mean, I could play that game. Frankly, I could make a lot of money playing that game. But I, it doesn't make any sense to me because I don't want my money to be used to make money. I have, a, I have a, a personal belief, and I'm not sure everybody on this call would share it, but I believe that money is there to, 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 to invest in real people, real buildings, real businesses. And if we do that, we're going to create the economic powerhouse we once all knew called the United States of America. So as my civic duty, I don't think it's great for me to go be a gambler. Now, if people like to go to Las Vegas and gamble, okay, call it what it is. That's a hobby or a sport or it's what you do for fun. But it's not what you do when you're trying to save a company, country from the deepest recession in the history of the United States, in the history of the world, actually. So what, what I think people need to do is say, look, let's get tougher on these banks. Support really tough banking regulation. Uh, Obama made a statement yesterday about what he wants to do to tax uh, the big bonus babies on Wall Street. That's what needs to happen. As we said in, the, in, the, in our econ forecast, all of our predictions this year are based upon two assumptions. And, and our, our predictions are very favorable. Assumption one, health care reform will be passed. Absolutely essential because the United States of America is the only one of 29 industrial nations that doesn't have it, and it's a huge drag on our international competitiveness as a country. Second assumption, we are assuming that financial reform will occur this year, meaning that the excesses of Wall Street, the, the gambling casino called Wall Street, will be brought under some form of control. Do you know that the number of derivatives issued today is higher than it was three months ago? And that's what brought the whole system to its knees. And they're still not regulated in any way, shape, or form. In October of 2008, we said one of the key things you have to do is regulate derivatives. Hasn't happened. Still believe it has to happen. We also believe that judges, federal judges in bankruptcy, should be allowed to reform mortgages. I think it's insane that they're not. And that's a, a hope that was defeated in 2009. I hope somebody brings it back up in 2010. Let me go, Howard, though, back because I want to touch on one other asset class. We were doing the lightning round, and we got off Great. of it. And, and as, after we do that, we do need to start switching on to our final topic, which will be energy in Copenhagen. So yeah. let's, let's, so, let's go there. I just want to tell people, I think it's time, based on our assessment of the economy, again, please get a copy of the econ forecast, and you can see why we're saying it. It's time to selectively be entering the equity markets again. In this call last month on this show, I gave an example because, as you know, we don't pick stocks and tell you to go buy them. We pick types of things, and I occasionally will give you an example. And last month I gave you the example of General Electric. And I went through and I analyzed um, how that company dealt with the financial crisis that, of, its, of its GE Capital subsidiary, how it was repositioning the company back into electric engines, by the way. So I just sold a whole bunch of engines, by the way, uh, to Brazil. And the rumor is they're going to run on ethanol, which I think is attractive. They recommitted to um, green energy. They recommitted to keeping their light bulb division, which they previously decided to sell. And they decided they were going to become a major player in green energy. All of that was really smart. Plus, Jeff Emelt was going around giving talks that indicated, as a CEO, he got the message of the last crash. He took responsibility for it. He knows what they did wrong, and he ain't going to let it happen again. That, together with the GE's high historical dividend ratios, led me to say that's an example of a company you need to look at to really analyze because even if you thought that they were a financial services company and somebody you wouldn't buy, GE might be somebody you'd look at if you really understood below the level of the sector and looking at the company and specifically at the management. Remember, in, in business, when you pick a stock, in, in real estate, the, there are three rules of what to pick. You pick by location, location, location. In business, it's management, management, management. The best idea, the greatest amount of capital in the hands of a fool is a disaster. Need I say more than say the words Ken Lay and Enron? Need I say more than 
the names I could list for you from Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, etc. So unlimited capital and unlimited uh, opportunities and a great business model doesn't make you money. Management makes you money ultimately. Well, I want to give you an example of that in a sector which you would not think to invest in. And that sector today is the automobile sector in the United States. And the manager in this question is a guy named Alan Mulally. Now, Alan Mulally came to Ford about three and a half years ago. He came from Boeing, where he was being considered as CEO candidate, and to Ford's good fortune. And Bill Ford, I want to give Bill Ford a lot of credit. Bill Ford stepped down in the company that bears his name because he realized he could not fix what was broken at Ford. And he was right. took a lot of humility, and he brought on Alan Mulally. Alan Mulally was the first player in Detroit in probably 50 or 60 years that came from outside the industry of any consequence. Alan's first goal, his first task, was to liquefy the company as fast as he could by cutting off all those pieces of the company that didn't have the ability to support it in the event of a coming crisis. So he sold off the Land Rover division. He sold off uh, Aston Martin. Uh, I believe Volvo was his. And, and, he, and, he, and he did all these sales to raise capital, which he did. I think he raised $26 billion at one point. And, and so he put that in the bank. So when the crisis hit, which it did, he had the liquidity that he didn't have to go to the federal government for bailout. Brilliant strategy. He saw it coming. Nobody else in Detroit. And by the way, even Toyota Motor did not see it coming. As good a team as it. And the, by the, way, the chairman of Toyota got fired, as you all know, about six or seven months ago because of this. So here's little Ford, terribly hobbled. He also correctly saw that he shouldn't be trying to get more market share, which is what all car companies were doing, including General Motors and Toyota. What he realized is he should be going for cash flow and profitability, so he shrunk the company to a smaller model. He, he abandoned, before it was required, the devotion Ford used to have to big SUVs and trucks and said, we've got to focus on a small car. He has now brought out a thing called the Focus, which, which could very well be the ticket to Ford's future. I haven't read enough about the Focus. It's been released uh, at the car show a week ago uh, for in concept. But from what I can tell, the theory behind the Focus all well, makes just, sense. Just a correction there. The Focus actually has been out as a model, but it is now going into a world brand. Uh, Correct. You mean the same it, car would be built around the world, which was not Ford's practice traditionally in the past. Right. And it was a way to get economic manufacturing. And the, and the theory was they could do what's called cross-platform building globally. And why they haven't done that sooner, Lord only knows. But that's what the focus that he's unveiled at the auto show last week is the, is the, the prototype of all this cross-platform building that's going to go on around the, the world. Now, my point of all that is Alan Mulally is a very, very good manager. He was good at Boeing. He's proven to even be better at Ford. Ford's starting to earn profits again. Now, I would not, generally speaking, say go invest in the automobile sector in equities. However, I would say if you're going to do an equity investment in the market at this time, go find those companies that did an extraordinary job of preparing for this last deep recession and who've come out the other side smelling pretty good. And in that context, Ford's looking pretty good to me. So I'm not saying I'm, I'm telling people to go buy Ford as a stock. I'm saying go look at stocks that way. So if you selectively find an equity that you a stock you like, I think it's a great time to get in because I believe the economy over the next year will continue to experience a solid growth. The growth of the economy will exceed, meaning it will be faster than the growth in jobs, which means that profits will continue to be good relative to sales. So increasing profits, good management, selectively, I think there are equities you can buy. I wouldn't tell you to rush in and buy a market index fund. 
So there are some other places you can put your money, but I'm conscious of the fact we're running out of time. We can Maybe next time, Howard, we can talk about bonds and ETFs and all that stuff. Right. We're down to our last uh, three minutes here, Ronaldo. Any last closing comments you want to make today? Um, yeah, just about Copenhagen. I want yeah. people to really – and by the way, please go to truthout.org slash WBA, and you'll see three articles we just put out on Truthout, one that Madeline Austin and I wrote, <clears throat> which is a book review on climate skeptics, and one that I wrote on Copenhagen and what to expect from Copenhagen and what the real promise of Copenhagen is. Basically, what I want people to know about Copenhagen is Copenhagen was not a place we were supposed to go to get a result. Copenhagen was where we went to start a conversation and a process. And I believe that that process has begun. And I believe that what's going to happen is a combination of private capital and economic forces combined with a clearer understanding by the United States government, meaning the Obama administration, as to how it needs to react to climate change and why it needs to do so immediately. Those factors together with natural marketplace drivers are going to create, not quick enough, I believe, to avert the calamities that are coming, but will create a better climate for climate change to be addressed my prayer and my hope is it will, be, it will accelerate over time so that we can finally get ahead of the climate change crisis because right now we're way behind it and it's mushrooming faster than we're addressing it. Um, if you want to talk about the price of a barrel of oil, I don't see a whole lot of upward mobility in the price of a barrel of oil other than that it will keep up with inflation or if you want, you could say it's pegged to the U.S. dollar. So based on the dollar value, Oil is pretty much now where it was a few months ago, and I don't see any reason for it to go significantly higher. And over the long term, I think the price of oil may actually drop, but it's a very, very long term and not something you're going to see in a significant way in the next, say, six months. So you're thinking it's going to hover around that $80 mark, roughly, give or Yeah, take. because I think if you look at 80 and you compare it to 73 and you look at the difference in the U.S. dollar, it's pretty much that's the difference. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, oil purchased in dollars still, as that stops happening, then you could see something different in the price of oil. But you also know that on the U.S. dollar with the price it's at, uh, the Saudi Arabian kingdom is dependent on it staying up at that level, as we've often commented, just to be able to provide for social stability in their country, as is Russia, who is not building excess liquidity or excess sovereign wealth uh, with oil only at 75 to $80 a barrel. They're not able to build excess wealth. They're barely able to keep up with their social payments. Those two countries... Uh, basically, Saudi Arabia and Russia have the ability to affect the price and can't keep it any higher, although they would love it to be higher to get them out of financial hot water. They can't drive it any higher. They've tried. Okay. Ronaldo, we're coming to the end of our hour here today, um, so I want to thank you for speaking again today, as always. I want to remind everyone that we'll be back again next month for our monthly call. Um, and if you have questions at that point, we'd be happy to take them in advance if you'd like to email in to the Academy offices. Uh, please do that. Uh, otherwise, we look forward to seeing you or listening to you a month from now. And with that, we're going to sign off. And thank you once again for participating in today's World Business Academy monthly call. Thank you, thank Howard. You. Thank right. you, everyone. Bye-bye, everyone.